From New York, this is Democracy Now! Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. President Biden warns the war in Ukraine may continue for a long time as NATO nations vow to increase support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. But China's blasting NATO for adopting a Cold War mentality. We'll get the latest. Then to Cobalt Red, how the blood of the Congo powers our lives. We'll look at how the world's increasing reliance on cobalt for mobile phones and electric cars has had a devastating impact on the Congo. And as the world now learns of this new Congo horror, the morale and casement and Harris of our time will be summoned to the cause of bringing an end to this vile scramble for loot that is drenched in the blood of the Congolese people that powers our lives. We'll speak to Siddharth Kara, author of the new book, Cobalt Red. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Heads of state from 31 NATO member nations have wrapped up their annual summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, pledging to support Ukraine in its war against Russia for as long as it takes. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with President Joe Biden on the sidelines of the talks, one day after he sharply criticized NATO's refusal to commit to a timeline for Ukraine to join the military alliance as unprecedented and absurd. Put it in simple terms, the moment the war is over, Ukraine will definitely be invited to join NATO, and Ukraine will become a member of the alliance. Before leaving Vilnius, Biden delivered a major address reaffirming U.S. support for Ukraine to join NATO someday and declaring NATO is now stronger than ever. President Biden's now in Helsinki, Finland, for a meeting with Scandinavian leaders. Finland recently joined NATO, and Sweden is poised to join as its 32nd member nation. Biden's the first U.S. president to visit Finland since then-President Donald Trump met with Vladimir Putin at a 2018 U.S.-Russia summit in Helsinki. We'll have more on the NATO summit after headlines. In Ukraine, at least one person was killed as Russia launched a wave of drone and missile attacks on the capital, Kyiv, for the third straight night. The attacks came amidst mounting signs of a crackdown by the Kremlin on leaders of the failed June 23rd mutiny by Wagner Group mercenaries. A Russian lawmaker close to President Putin said Wednesday the deputy commander of Russia's military operation in Ukraine is, quote, currently resting and not available for now. Sergei Surovikin reportedly had advanced knowledge of the Wagner rebellion. He has not been seen publicly since shortly after the failed mutiny. On Wednesday, Russia's foreign intelligence chief, Sergei Naryshkin, confirmed he spoke with the director of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, William Burns, in a phone call late last month to discuss the Wagner rebellion and the war in Ukraine. The U.N. Security Council's meeting to discuss North Korea's latest launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile Wednesday in the 12th such test this year. The launch came after Pyongyang threatened to retaliate against alleged U.S. spy plane incursions over its territory. Japan and South Korea's leaders condemned the launch from the NATO summit. 
The U.N. is calling for an investigation over a mass grave in Sudan's West Darfur region, which contained at least 87 bodies, including members of the ethnic Masalit community. The U.N.'s human rights chief said there's credible information that the paramilitary rapid support forces are responsible. This comes as peace talks appear to have hit a wall and as the U.N. warns Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war after three months of deadly fighting. To see our discussion about Sudan, go to democracynow.org. Guatemala is facing deepening political turmoil as the attorney general's office suspended the progressive Samia party Wednesday. Just minutes later, Guatemala's top electoral tribunal certified the results of the first round of the presidential election, sending conservative former first lady Sandra Torres and Samia's Bernardo Arevalo to the August runoff. Following Samia's surprise second-place position in June's first round, Torres and her allies challenged the results, leading to a review of the votes. Arevalo is running on an anti-corruption platform. He is the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president, Juan José Arevalo. In Thailand, the reformist candidate, Pita Limjaroenrat, lost the parliamentary vote to become the next prime minister. His opposition Move Forward party received wide support from voters in Thailand's May election, but he was thwarted in today's vote by the Senate that was appointed after a military coup in 2014. Move Forward has vowed to reform Thailand's Les Majeste laws, which saw people arrested and jailed for insulting the monarchy following mass youth-led protests in 2020 calling for reforms to the royal system. Further votes will now be scheduled to select a leader. Move Forward could decide to advance Pita Limjaranot as their candidate again. In India, authorities in the capital, New Delhi, are warning of shortages of drinking water after the city of 20 million people was inundated by torrential rains, forcing the evacuation of thousands of people in low-lying neighborhoods. Recent flooding in India has left at least 22 people dead. Southern Europe is baking under an unrelenting heat wave, with parts of Spain forecast to top 45 degrees Celsius or 113 degrees Fahrenheit. This week, a report in the journal Nature Medicine found Europe's historically hot summer last year resulted in more than 61,000 premature deaths. Here in the United States, multiple tornadoes touched down Wednesday across the Chicago area, including a twister that struck near Chicago O'Hare International Airport, prompting passengers to take cover and disrupting hundreds of flights. More than 112 million people across the U.S. were under heat alerts Wednesday, with more blistering heat in the forecast through the weekend. This is meteorologist Tom Frieders of the National Weather Service. We're looking at, you know, potential daily records for high temperatures being broken from California to the west through Arizona all the way into West Texas. Meanwhile, Vermont, which has suffered from major flooding, is expecting major rainfall this weekend. In the Caribbean, marine biologists are warning unprecedented ocean heat is further stressing a coral reef system that's already on the brink of collapse. This week, the farmer's insurance company said it would no longer cover properties in Florida, citing increasingly frequent extreme weather and flooding events caused by the climate crisis. 
Colombian officials said Wednesday deforestation in Colombia's Amazon rainforest dropped by 26 percent last year as the government worked with former rebels to protect the environment. This follows the release of new figures showing deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon fell by one-third in the first half of 2023. Amidst a government crackdown on illegal miners and loggers, the Brazilian president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, and his Colombian counterpart, Colombian President Gustavo Petro, met at a regional summit over the weekend, where they pledged to work together to safeguard the Amazon. President Petro said indigenous communities deserve an economy that doesn't rely on extractive industries. The northern people wiped out the forests and killed the indigenous people. Is that development? Do we have to do the same? Or is there an entirely different perspective opening up? There is another kind of development that has to do with not cutting down the tree. A new report by The Wall Street Journal reveals AT&T, Verizon and other telecom companies for decades covered up the dangers of their lead-containing phone cables to workers and the environment. But the companies failed to take action to mitigate or monitor the risk posed by sprawling networks of cables, despite internal reports showing dangerously high levels of lead found in the blood of workers. At least 2,000, though likely many more, lead-covered cables remain underwater in soil and in overhead poles throughout the United States. In related news, the EPA is proposing stricter limits on lead dust from homes and childcare facilities built before 1978 as an official asserted there's no safe level of lead. The new rule would deem any quantity of dust in floors and windowsills from lead-based paint as hazardous, requiring abatement. Babies and young children are the most vulnerable to lead exposure, which can damage the brain and nervous system. Several lawyers who had business before the U.S. Supreme Court used the online payment app Venmo to send money to a top aide to Justice Clarence Thomas. That's according to The Guardian, which reports the payments to the aide, Rajan Vasisht, appear to have been made in connection with a 2019 Christmas party held by Justice Thomas. Among those making payments was Patrick Strawbridge, who recently successfully argued that affirmative action violates the U.S. Constitution, and Elbert Lynn, who played a key role in a case that saw the Supreme Court limit the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Former White House ethics lawyer Richard Painter responded, there is no excuse for it. A federal government employee collecting money from lawyers for any reason, I don't see how that works, he said. Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee grilled FBI Director Christopher Wray Wednesday, accusing his agency of politicization as they took issue with Wray's response to the Capitol insurrection, investigations into Donald Trump, President Biden and his family, and the agency's use of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, among other things. This is FBI Director Christopher Wray during a heated exchange with Wyoming Congressmember Harriet Hageman, who accused Wray of, quote, weaponizing the FBI against conservatives. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. Christopher Wray is a registered Republican appointed by Trump. 
The union representing more than 160,000 Hollywood actors and performers is on the cusp of a strike. This morning, a negotiating committee with the Screen Actors Guild voted unanimously to recommend a walkout after talks with a federal mediator aimed at hammering out a new labor contract failed at the 11th hour. Guild President Fran Drescher said in a statement, quote, The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers' responses to the union's most important proposals have been insulting and disrespectful of our massive contributions to this industry, she said. Hollywood writers have been on strike since May 2nd. Joelle Selner, a writer who joined Picket Lines in Burbank, California, Wednesday, says a walkout by actors will turn up pressure on big studios. If SAG goes on strike, they lose their reality in game shows, and they're going to really start to, to feel it, because right now they've stockpiled scripts, and they have things in the pipeline, things they think they can do without writers, um, and you really can't do anything without actors. Democracy Now! employees are represented by SAG-AFTRA, but are covered by a different union contract than Hollywood actors. And longtime political prisoner Matulu Shakur has died from cancer at the age of 72, just seven months after his release on parole after nearly 37 years in prison. The stepfather of the late hip-hop icon Tupac Shakur was convicted in 1988 of conspiracy and several armed robberies and for aiding the 1979 prison escape of Asada Shakur, who fled to Cuba. In the 1970s, Matulu Shakur was part of the black nationalist group Republic of New Africa that worked with the Black Panther Party and Young Lords to start the first acupuncture detoxification program in the United States as drugs flooded their communities. Come up to the Bronx, dope fiends, hardened dope victims. We would massage their ears and massage their hands and their legs, and we would stand there with our fingers in their ears or in the different points. We do deep breathing, and they'd fall right out to sleep and just relax. And then the next day they'd be back for that treatment, and we would detoxify people off of heroin and cocaine. Matulu Shakur speaking in the Vice documentary Dope is Death, directed by Mia Donovan. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. When we come back, President Biden warns the war in Ukraine may continue for a long time as NATO nations vow to increase support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. But China's blasting NATO for adopting what they call a Cold War mentality. We'll get the latest. It's a still life watercolor of a now late afternoon As the sun shines through the curtain lace and shadows wash the room And we sit and drink our coffee Couched in our indifference like shells upon the shore you can hear the ocean roar In the dangling conversation And the superficial sighs The borders of our lives And you read your Emily Dickinson And I my Robert Frost And we note our place with bookmarkers that measure what we've lost 
Like a poem poorly written. The Dangling Conversation by Simon and Garfunkel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. President Biden has vowed to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Biden made the pledge after the closing of a major NATO summit in Lithuania, where the military alliance agreed to invite Ukraine to NATO someday, but no timeline was announced. During his speech, Biden drew parallels between the Cold War and efforts today to push Russia out of Ukraine. NATO is stronger, more energized, and yes, more united than ever in its history. Indeed, more vital to our shared future. It didn't happen by accident. It wasn't inevitable. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine, he was betting NATO would break apart. He was betting NATO would break. He thought our unity would shatter at the first testing. He thought Democratic leaders would be weak. But he thought wrong. After the NATO summit in Lithuania, Biden flew to Helsinki, the capital of Finland, the newest member of NATO. Finland shares an 830-mile border with Russia. While much of the NATO summit focused on Ukraine, NATO nations also issued a communique criticizing China's growing military power, saying Beijing's actions are threatening the security of NATO members. On Wednesday, Wang Wenbin a spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry criticized what he called NATO's Cold War mentality. We urge NATO to immediately stop distorting and smearing China and fabricating lies, abandon the outdated concept of the Cold War mentality and zero-sum game, abandon the blind faith in a military force in pursuit of absolute security, and abandon the dangerous behavior of disrupting Europe and the Asian Pacific. Do not fabricate excuses for their continued expansion and play a constructive role in world peace and stability. China also criticized what it called NATO's eastward march after leaders from Australia, Japan, New Zealand and South Korea took part in the NATO talks. Meanwhile, talks between China and the United States are continuing. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is expected to meet today with China's top diplomat Wang Yi in Indonesia at a meeting of ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Meanwhile, Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, is scheduled to visit China next week. To talk more about the NATO summit, we're joined by Stephen Wertheim. He's a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School and Catholic University, author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. His recent op-ed piece for The New York Times is titled The Tale the West Tells Itself About Ukraine. You wrote that, uh, Stephen Wertheim, before NATO. But tell us what you believe is the tale um, that is told that is wrong. Well, the basic story, and it's not all wrong, uh, that is uh, predominant in Western capitals, uh, is that Russia launched its war of aggression, its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of last year for reasons uh, entirely internal to Russia. That is, Russia uh, fears uh, uh, 
a democracy in Ukraine that's on its border, or Russia is imperialistic and covets Ukrainian territory. That's all true uh, to a large extent, uh, but part of the tale is that the West took no actions that causally contributed to the decision by Russia to, to launch its aggression against Ukraine. And I think that's uh, simply not true, or that over overdraws the, the distinction. The fact is, yes, Russia uh, uh, has uh, an imperial mentality, especially when it comes to Ukraine. Uh, but it's partly for that reason uh, that Russia uh, has been, over the years, so opposed to uh, NATO enlargement uh, and the incorporation of Ukraine, uh, to be clear, through Ukrainians' own choices, uh, into a, a Western orientation. So, Stephen, if you could elaborate on that and talk not just about Ukraine, but other former Soviet states and other countries previously aligned with the then Soviet Union that have expressed and uh, an interest, as you say, uh, in joining NATO and subsequently did, and how Russia responded then. Yeah, so this is a really complicated story, but there was a, a so-called Big Bang round of enlargement, the second major uh, round after the Cold War that occurred in 2004. Uh, and at that time, uh, seven countries joined NATO, including the three Baltic republics that had been uh, Soviet republics, that is, not just parts of the, the former Warsaw Pact, but in fact, constituent parts of the Soviet Union. At that time, Moscow did not react uh, too harshly. It was a time when uh, Vladimir Putin, a new president, was trying to cultivate positive relations with the West, and he thought that there was an opportunity uh, to, uh, to partner with Washington around the, the global war on terror, and he could use that to his advantage. But the real source of uh, intense uh, uh, controversy came in 2008 when George W. Bush uh, tried to get uh, NATO allies to agree to give a membership action plan, that is, a concrete uh, plan uh, for Ukraine and Georgia to join NATO. Uh, and that's when this uh, strange compromise was forged at the, uh, the summit held in Bucharest, in, in 2008, stating that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, but not giving them a plan or a timeline uh, to actually do so. Uh, and I think that's, uh, in, in many ways, the sort of proximate source of, of the uh, tensions uh, between uh, NATO and Ukraine on the one hand and, and Russia uh, on, on the other hand. Uh, now, leading up to that summit, uh, the guy who's the current CIA director, uh, Bill Burns, he was then the ambassador to Russia, and he warned uh, Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State, uh, that Ukraine joining NATO would constitute the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. Unfortunately, his advice uh, wasn't heeded. So it's a reminder that many uh, leading officials and, and analysts have understood over the years that uh, you know, flirting with the notion of Ukraine in particular or Georgia joining NATO would be something that would uh, run a very real risk of causing Russia to uh, to take aggressive steps 
against those countries in a bid to prevent their alignment with NATO. Now, I have to say, you know, looking at the history since then, uh, Russia has reacted very badly. Uh, it has committed aggression against Ukraine, and it, I think it's backfired on, on Russia spectacularly. Uh, when Russia has meddled in Ukraine, Ukrainians have turned further west. But we have to appreciate this whole dynamic of this history if, in order to create uh, a more stable and peaceful future coming out of this war uh, when, it, when it ends. And it might be quite a while uh, b- before it ends. And by erasing this history of uh, the dynamic between uh, Western actions and uh, Russian actions, uh, that uh, can make us overlook uh, factors that that will cause problems in the future. Specifically, bringing Ukraine into NATO or trying to do that is something that could well cause Russia to reinvade Ukraine, or at least give it an excuse to do so, after the current war ends. So Ukrainians and many others uh, in the West think that bringing Ukraine into NATO is some kind of silver bullet solution. It's the strongest possible guarantee of security for Ukraine. But uh, I fear that they may be incorrect about that. Well, Stephen, you mentioned the, the 2008 uh, Bucharest uh, summit, uh, NATO summit, uh, and you said uh, in a tweet that uh, this summit uh, in Vilnius uh, intended to deliver a, quote, Bucharest plus statement on Ukraine's future uh, membership. But you write, I wonder if it has, in fact, produced Bucharest minus. So if you could uh, explain what you mean by that and whether what you advocate, uh, namely that uh, uh, Ukraine should be armed and able to defend itself, but not be given NATO membership, isn't that effectively, uh, even if not explicitly, what was agreed in Vilnius? That's a really good question. I think you could read the Vilnius statement in the way that you have suggested. Uh, What actually came out of this summit? So there had been a big push in the weeks and months prior uh, to make a very clear statement uh, about uh, Ukraine getting into NATO and laying out an actual timetable or plan to make that happen. Uh, And that is not what happened. Uh, The allies including the White House, tried to uh, deliver Bucharest Plus. They tried to make it sound like Ukraine was coming closer to NATO membership than ever and that this would be a very real likelihood after the war. And yet, in the process of doing so, they actually revealed that the alliance was split uh, and they came up with a formulation that's uh, tautological, basically the Alliance will be in a position to offer membership to Ukraine when allies agree uh, and conditions are met. So that's pretty much true for any country. Uh, So in a way, by revealing, by putting pressure on this question, they have revealed that there are very serious uh, hesitations about bringing Ukraine into NATO and uh, no clear... um, agreement on what conditions Ukraine would have to meet. Uh, And the White House itself, I think, seems to be putting forward two contradictory logics on this score. On the one hand, President Biden says very clearly, and I think he absolutely means this, that uh, the United States absolutely should not go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Uh, And that would imply 
not doing so not only now, but also in the future. On the other hand, uh, a pledge of NATO membership uh, would be something that, if deterrence fails, would presumably bring the United States into a direct war uh, with Russia. Uh, and he's also sort of entertaining the idea that Ukraine just has to meet certain standards, democratic standards, in order to join. So which which is it? Um, that hasn't been resolved. It's been uh, it's been punted toward the future. So this uh, drama will will go on. But what we did see, to your point, uh, actually come out of the summit was a remarkable statement by the G7 countries uh, promising. Uh, long-term economic and security assistance to Ukraine. And uh, we can expect that other countries will will join this framework, and it's part of uh, creating uh, what you might call either armed neutrality or an Israel model for Ukraine, by which Ukraine can defend itself, uh, and it will be well-armed and well-supported outside of the NATO framework uh, by its by its international partners, that is the model that actually moved forward in this summit. Uh, finally, Stephen Wertheim, if you can comment on China, all the attention is on Ukraine, but in fact, that isn't what was actually happening at NATO. Uh, there was a lot of sidelining and going after China, and China struck back, uh, calling NATO's eastward march, warning about it, talking about um, a new Cold War. Now you have uh, Blinken uh, in Jakarta meeting with top diplomat of China, and you have John Kerry going to China. Uh, Can you talk about the significance of what's coming out of this? I wouldn't say there was much that was concrete about China or or new coming out of this summit, but China is concerned uh, about uh, the uh, attempts of the alliance to to integrate European allies with U.S. allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. I will say the People's Republic of China uh, tends to call a whole lot of things uh, a product of a quote-unquote Cold War mentality. At this point, I think, you know, that kind of mentality or a mentality of intense, uh, durable strategic competition is pretty well entrenched in Western capitals, as well as in Moscow and in Beijing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, one thing that the NATO alliance should think very carefully about is, first of all, exactly where it's going uh, with respect to actions in the Indo-Pacific. The United States has chosen, under President Biden, not to take uh, actions that would encourage a more balanced military relationship between the uh, transatlantic allies and thus would allow the United States to shift its focus uh, on deterrence in the Asia-Pacific. Instead, it is trying to be the leading provider of security in Europe and Asia simultaneously and hope that its allies and partners in each region uh, support the goals of one another. We're going to have uh, to leave it there. So, 
Um, Stephen Wertheim, Terrific. we want to thank you so much for being with us, senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, author of Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. And we'll link to your New York Times op-ed, The Tale the West Tells Itself About Ukraine. Next up, we look at how the world's increasing reliance on cobalt for mobile phones, electric cars have had a devastating impact on the Congo. We'll speak with Siddharth Kara author of the new book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. Back in 30 seconds. My People by Yusu Andur. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermi Sheikh. We end today's show looking at how the world's increasing reliance on cobalt for mobile phones, electric cars, has had a devastating impact on the Congo. Cobalt is a key component in lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. Nearly three-quarters of the world's supply is mined in the Congo under horrific conditions. Siddharth Kara documents the human rights and environmental catastrophe in the Congo in his new book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. In it, he writes, quote, There are many episodes in the history of the Congo that are bloodier than what's happening in the mining sector today, but none of these episodes ever involves so much suffering for so much profit, linked so indispensably to the lives of billions of people around the world. Kara continues, spend a short time watching the filth-cake children of the Katanga region scrounge at the earth for cobalt, and you'd be unable to determine whether they were working for the benefit of Leopold or a tech company. That's Sadath Kara, writing in Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. His previous book, Sex Trafficking, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery, won the 2010 Frederick Douglass Book Prize, awarded for the best book written in English on slavery or abolition. Siddharth Kara, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us from London. This book is absolutely devastating. But, of course, it's describing that reality on the ground in Congo. Um, tell us the story of how you came to focus on this and how cobalt links the devastation of the Congo to the West. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you about this crucial and very urgent matter. Um, I had been doing research on various forms of slavery and child labor around the world for many, many years, uh, starting in the year 2000. And around 2016, I heard from some colleagues in the field um, about very um, uh, appalling conditions in the mining of cobalt in the DR Congo. And I had no idea what cobalt was. I thought it was a color. I, I didn't know that it was uh, in rechargeable batteries. 
Uh, so it took me a little time to, to organize my first trip, establish ground relationships. Uh, I got into the Congo the first time in 2018. Uh, and what I saw was just uh, so um, horrific, uh, so extreme and severe. And the fact that it was uh, at the bottom of supply chains that reach out like a kraken across the global economy and touch the lives of everyone, everyone listening to us right now, uh, cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. And as you noted in your remarks, roughly three-fourths of the world's supply comes from the Congo. And it's mind and conditions. You you uh, read the bit, uh, the sentence that links to Leopold. It's mind in conditions that are like the colonial times, where the people of Africa are reduced uh, to brute labor. Uh, their lives are not valued. Their labor is not valued. Their humanity is not valued. And that's the reality uh, that exists at the bottom of cobalt supply chains. So that, uh, I mean, the book is just uh, uh, magnificent. And as Amy said, it's it's completely devastating. So if you could explain to us, you know, for people, myself included, when I read the book, the difference between artisanal mining and the conditions that exist on artisanal mines, areas where, where uh, artisanal miners search for, for cobalt, um, and industrial mining, uh, and then describe some of the conditions. Who are these miners? Uh, how many children are involved? Involved, and how big are these mines? You've said uh, some of them are as large as European cities, uh, including London. Yeah, so let's spend a moment and just understand what's happening on the ground in that part of the Congo. And this is the southeastern part um, from the towns between Lubumbashi and Kolowezi. And when you get down to that part of the Congo, uh, there are massive industrial mining operations on the one hand. And now outside of the Congo, Consumer-facing tech and EV companies will have you believe that all of their cobalt supply in their batteries for their gadgets and cars comes only from these industrial mines. Industrial means what it sounds like. Uh, heavy machinery, excavators digging and gouging at the earth. Uh, what's happened there is uh, not sustainable at all in terms of industrial activity. Millions of trees clear-cut, massive destruction and contamination of the environment. Now, alongside that, and the reality is, inside of these industrial operations, there are hundreds of thousands of people, including tens of thousands of children, who dig by hand. Now, the quaint term given to them is artisanal mining. And that makes you think that they're walking around baking bread or doing work in pleasing conditions. But nothing could be further from the truth. Artisanal mining means these tens of thousands of children, hundreds of thousands of people scrounging at the ground with pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar or their bare hands to pull cobalt out of the ground and feed it up the chain. Many of these people are digging inside industrial mines and outside of the Congo. Tech and EV companies will have you believe that that does not happen. But the truth on the ground is very different. They also dig all around the countryside because cobalt is everywhere. There are more reserves of cobalt in that part of the Congo than the rest of the planet combined. So the local population has been displaced by enormous mining operations. You made note that some of these are as big as cities. Well, these mining concessions, concessions means the territory a foreign mining company is allowed to exploit. The biggest one in that part of the Congo is the size of London, where I'm sitting right now. So imagine a London-sized swath of countryside that's been completely gouged, destroyed, clear-cut, and contaminated in this scramble. 
to get cobalt out of the ground and up the chain. And imagine the hundreds of thousands of people who used to live in that territory, forcibly displaced, now without home, without a way to live. And all they can do is scramble back into that ground, try to dig some cobalt out of the earth and feed it up the chain for a dollar or two a day. I want to turn to a clip from a 2017 Sky News special report on child miners in the DRC cobalt mines. When I wake up every morning, I feel terrible knowing I have to come back here again. Everything hurts. When I'm working here, I'm suffering. My mother, she's already dead, and I have to work all day, and my head hurts me. And this is a clip from a documentary produced by Australian's uh, Broadcasting Corporation last year in a film titled Blood Cobalt, the Congo's Dangerous and Deadly Green Energy Mines. Artisanal miner Mama Natalie explains why she works in the mines accompanied by her two children. I come to the mine to hustle. If I am lucky, I make some money and I buy food for the kids. But if I don't, they go to sleep hungry. We collect dirt. The kids help by packing it up and washing it. They also sort through it, looking for minerals. It's not a good life for children. We just don't have any other options. So, Siddharth Kara, um, as we hear these voices of the people who are actually digging for the cobalt, what about the responsibility of the corporations, names we know so well, um, whether we're talking about Apple or, well, you name the names, and then talk about what they, how they explain this level of exploitation, certainly not something you could see in the children of California doing. Well, by and large, these consumer-facing tech and EV companies look the other way. And these are the big names we're all familiar with. Apple, Tesla, Google, Microsoft, Samsung. I mean, you can go down the list. They all buy some, most, or all of their cobalt from the Congo because there's no other cobalt to buy, quite frankly. Um, they're all aware, to some degree, I'm sure, of the conditions on the ground. And, and by and large, they simply offer PR statements that their supply chains are audited, that they're certified, that they protect and preserve the human rights of every participant in their supply chain, that they have zero tolerance policies on child labor, that mining is done sustainably. So you as a consumer, you as a shareholder, don't worry about it. But the truth, the truth that the Congolese people have to share is completely different. They are at the bottom of the supply chain with no alternative but to eke out this base, scrounging, hazardous, miserable existence for a dollar or two a day, feeding cobalt up the chain to these behemoth tech and EV companies. As your clip mentioned, the mother said there's no other alternative there. These people have been displaced and pushed to a cliff's edge. If they want to eat, they have to put their lives at risk to dig cobalt out of the ground. And it's part of the scramble. You see, there is so much demand, especially being driven by this transition to electric vehicles. There is so much demand for cobalt that mining companies can't get it out of the ground quickly enough. Well, if you have hundreds of thousands of grindingly poor people 
there digging it out of the ground. It's a penny wage way of boosting production to try and meet demand. And your listeners and viewers should understand cobalt is toxic. It's toxic to touch. It's toxic to breathe. So I have seen thousands of women with babies strapped to their backs, inhaling toxic cobalt dust day in and day out. Ten-year-old children caked in toxic filth, exposing themselves to toxic cobalt. And the ore that these children are digging that has cobalt in it often has traces of radioactive uranium. So the public health catastrophe on top of the human rights violence, on top of the environmental destruction, is unlike anything we've ever seen in the modern context. And the fact that it is linked to companies worth trillions and that our lives depend on this enormous violence has to be dealt with. And Siddharth, you point out, I'll just read out a short uh, quote of yours because you mentioned uh, what these miners are paid. So you write, the most fortunate tunnel diggers in Kasulo earn around $3,000 per year, the most fortunate. By way of comparison, the CEOs of the technology and car companies that buy the cobalt mined from Kasuro earn $3,000 in an hour, and they do so without having to put their lives at risk each day that they go to work. So if you could um, explain, I mean, first of all, talk, as you said, 7 or $8 is the maximum a day that people earn what do these children get, these four, five, six, seven-year-old children and countless teenagers? Yes, well, you see the riches that are uh, uh, enjoyed at the top of the chain, they're stacked to the sky on top of the, the narrow, beleaguered shoulders of the children of the Congo. So start with a family unit. Um, uh, men and, and uh, teenage boys with some strength, they might be digging tunnels in, in, in a neighborhood like Kasulo that you just mentioned, which is uh, in Kulawesi, ground zero for cobalt mining. Uh, they dig shafts down into the ground uh, up to 100 feet deep to try to find slightly higher grades of cobalt ore. Think of it like purity, so that instead of earning a dollar or two or three, maybe they'll earn four or five or six Well, they're crouched in darkness. They don't have room to sit up as they work for 18 hours uh, at a time underground. And those tunnels often collapse, burying alive everyone inside. Uh, On the ground, you'll have younger children and maybe mothers uh, digging in pits and trenches that could be a few meters deep. Uh, They will gather sacks of dirt and stone and fill them up and take them over to putrid rinsing pools where young children, little boys and girls, will use a sieve to try to separate dirt and stone from cobalt-bearing ore. They go through this process throughout an entire day to fill one sack for which the family might get two or three or four dollars from the buyers, the Chinese buyers, who then sell it to formal industrial mining companies. So at the bottom end, children could be earning 50 cents to a dollar for rinsing and sieving and sorting. And at the best, on the best day, uh, tunnel digging uh, males and teenage boys might earn five or six or seven dollars, but putting their lives uh, at risk for a potentially horrid demise each and every day. So can you talk about the responsibility of the Congolese government, of China, of the United States? Well, ultimately, what What needs to happen is the companies at the top of the chain have to accept responsibility for the conditions at the bottom of their cobalt supply chains. It's that lack of accountability 
the lack of accepting responsibility for the conditions of labor of the Congolese people and the environmental destruction that leads to a host of other ills. So every actor in the supply chain, from Chinese mining companies to the Congolese government, they're all parts of a chain that starts at the top. And there are bad actors at every level. The Congolese government, of course, has its role to play uh, in not adequately and equitably allocating mining revenues uh, to the population there. There's corruption and graft, of course, which plagues the country of the Congo. Uh, but China, it, it dominates and controls mining production on the ground. And what I've seen with my own eyes and what any Congolese person living in the Katanga region will tell you is they pay no heed to the human rights of the Congolese people and they pay no heed to the environment, to environmental protection. Uh, mining companies, especially the Chinese ones, dump toxic effluents in the earth, the air, the water. I have seen villages with children playing in the dirt covered in sulfuric acid powder that is wafting over the entire countryside from mineral processing plants at Chinese mining companies. And as I've mentioned a few times, millions of trees have been clear cut. And I never met anyone in the Congo who said they saw anyone planting one tree to replace them. The waterways, lakes and rivers have also been polluted. So fish stocks are polluted. Animal stocks are polluted. Vegetables are polluted. Everyone there is being slowly poisoned to death by cobalt mining operations. That's the truth that the stakeholders at the top of the chain don't want us to know. But that's the truth the Congolese people are desperate to share. So that could you explain? You talked about how is it that China came to play such a huge role in the cobalt mining industry, uh, owning and financing as many of the mines, 15 out of the 19 major industrial copper cobalt mining complexes in the main cobalt producing provinces that you visited. How has China come to play this role? And then talk about the depots, um, the bosses that you spoke to. It was very difficult to get into the depots. They all have armed guards and so on. Uh, what did those uh, the, the Chinese uh, bosses of these depots tell you about uh, the conditions there, uh, what they're doing there? And uh, did they take any responsibility at all uh, for the conditions under which these miners were working? Well, in a way, we, you have to give China credit. Fifteen plus years ago, they saw that the future was going to be rechargeable batteries. And that meant cobalt. Uh, and they shrewdly determined uh, all the cobalts in the Congo. And starting in 2009, with the previous administration of President Joseph Kabila, they started signing deals. And the first one they signed in 2009 was a six billion dollar loan and infrastructure deal in exchange for access to several copper cobalt mines in the Congo. And that opened the door that opened the floodgates. And then it was one state run Chinese mining company after another signing deals with the Kabila administration. And before the West knew what was happening, China had locked down the bottom of the cobalt supply chain. And from that point forward, they vertically integrated it. They control probably 70 to 80 percent of mining production on the ground in the Congo. Last year, they supplied about 80 percent of the world's supply of refined cobalt and probably half of the world's supply of rechargeable batteries for phones, laptops and cars. But how does this artisanal cobalt the child mine cobalt enter into that formal supply chain. Well, there's an informal ecosystem that exists right next to the formal supply chain. Uh, and imagine it like this. You have hundreds of thousands of people digging uh, all around that part of the countryside, filling up sacks of cobalt. 
and they take it to these depots or, or they're also called buying houses. And most of them are run by Chinese agents. And their job is to buy up artisanal cobalt and sell it straight to industrial mining companies. And so you can just sit outside and they, they advertise with these pink tarps. They'll say copper cobalt depot, one million dollar depot, a dollar sign depot. Um, uh, and so artisanal miners uh, sell their cobalt to these to these buying houses And at the end of the day, you see huge cargo trucks uh, from the industrial mines uh, pull up and buy up all these sacks, hundreds and hundreds of sacks, so tons of cobalt being purchased. And they take them right into the industrial mine where it's then mixed with the industrial production. And from that point forward, this is very important for people to understand. From that point forward, there is no way to disaggregate which cobalt was pulled out of the ground by an excavator and which cobalt was pulled out of the ground by hands of, the, of a child. And any company that claims otherwise is either recklessly ignorant of the truth on the ground or they're dealing in falsehood. So we're talking to Siddharth Kara, who is author of Cobalt Red. You end your book uh, quoting the last letter of Patrice Lumumba to his wife. Patrice Lumumba, the Congolese independence leader, first prime minister, um, who was assassinated in 1961. Um, the U.S. went after him, this, specifically the CIA, Belgium. Talk about this quote when you write, Patrice Lumumba offered a fleeting chance at a different fate, but the neo-colonial machinery of the West chopped him down and replaced him with someone who would keep their riches flowing. And that was the longtime, decades-long dictator, Mobutu Sese Seko, long supported by the United States. Well— Let's go back to the moment of independence in 1960 uh, in the DR Congo. And 17 countries in Africa uh, got independence from their colonial powers that year. Um, Congo was coming out of centuries of the slave trade and then Belgian colonialism. Patrice Lumumba was a very bold, popular nationalist leader. He was elected in the country's first democratic elections to be their first president and prime minister. And he had a bold vision that the Congo's mineral wealth, its rich resources, and the Congo is blessed with enormous riches and resources. His vision was that those resources should be for the benefit of the Congolese people and not foreign powers. Well, 11 days after independence, Belgium amputated the part of the Congo that we're talking about right now, Katanga, where all the mineral resources are. And that was 80 percent of the country's economy at independence. So 11 days, the country had 11 days of freedom before the before Belgium went in and amputated the most important part of the country. Well, Lumumba asked the United Nations for help expelling the Belgians. Uh, They did not uh, cooperate. So then he turned towards the Soviet Union and asked their help in, in expelling the Belgians from his country. Well, the thought that the Congo's mineral riches would flow towards the Soviet Union and not continue flowing to the West sent those neocolonial powers into a tailspin. And they hatched a plan very quickly uh, to dispatch of Lumumba, the U.S., Belgium, the CIA. They were all involved in capturing Lumumba. Uh, They flew him to the Belgian stronghold uh, in Katanga, uh, tortured him. Uh, shot him, chopped him to pieces, dissolved his body in acid, ground his bones to dust so no trace could ever be found except for one tooth that was held as a souvenir by one of the Belgian assassins. And in fact, that tooth was just returned by Belgium 
to Lumumba's descendants last year. So the lesson was, the lesson was, unless you play ball with the West, we'll chop you down and replace you with someone who will. And as you noted, that person ended up being Joseph Mobutu for three decades, a corrupt, bloodthirsty, a despot and kleptocrat who uh, ran the Congo into the ground. And so the Congo really never had a chance. It's just been one set of corrupt leadership after another. But they had their chance uh, at freedom and maybe a completely different path uh, with Lumumba after independence. Uh, But sadly, um, the the colonial powers uh, uh, had other plans. So that if we could go back um, to the stories, in fact, that you heard while you were in the Congo, what's in fact become uh, of the place. You interview many miners and families of miners in the book. Could you tell us a couple of those stories, the story, for example, of Elodie or Lubo? Just tell us what they told you, who they are. Yeah, uh you know, Elodie uh, is a, a young girl I met on my first uh, trip to the Congo. Uh, she was 15 years old, uh, an orphan. Uh, she was digging in an area uh, called uh, uh, Lake Malo, which is uh, near a village called Kapata in the Kolowezi area. And she'd been orphaned by cobalt mining. Um, her father, she reported, died in a tunnel collapse inside an industrial mine uh, right next to where she was digging when I met her. Uh, and her mother died from uh, some infection or illness. She wasn't sure, but her mother was someone who rinsed uh, cobalt stones in the very toxic waters at Lake Malo. Uh, and Elodie was an orphan uh, on her own. And there are thousands of children who have been orphaned by cobalt mining. And they scramble and scrounge for cobalt. And in her case, she couldn't make ends meet. She had to uh, prostitute herself as a teenager to try to get money to survive. When I met her, it was it was pretty clear to me she uh, was in the later stages of HIV. She had a two month old son strapped to her back. Uh, She was wiry, mucus crusted, very, very ill. And what I saw in her was the face of what the global economy was doing to the Congo. Um, It's almost impossible to imagine that. Um, this, the degradation of this child and children like her can be transformed by the global economy into shiny phones and cars. But that's exactly what's happened. And she was sort of the, the quintessence of this story, the complete degradation of Congolese children, children thrown to a pack of wolves by a global economy that transformed their, their degradation, their suffering, uh, into the the indispensable gadgets and cars that we rely on every day, and and that's that's an injustice. That's a that's a uh, an utterly caustic, miserable formula that needs to be set right because we can't conduct our rechargeable economy in our daily lives uh, by inflicting such violence and suffering on some of the poorest children in the world. Siddharth Kara, we want to thank you so much for being with us, author of the new book, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. His previous book, Sex Trafficking Inside the Business of Modern Slavery, won the 2010 Frederick Douglass Book Prize, awarded for the best book written in English on slavery or abolition. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced, with Mike Burke, Renee Feldstein, Augusta Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.